the letters to the seven churches that Christ gives John in his vision, the beginning here of Revelation. And we've come to the end of chapter 2 to the church at Thyatira. So we're going to begin reading in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18 through 29. So if you follow along, I'm going to start at verse 18 in Revelation 2. It says, And unto the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and thy charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into a great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come." And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's stop here and have a moment of prayer, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Our Father, again, we just come before you as your people, and Lord, you know our hearts. You look at us from the inside out, and so you know the things that we need spiritually. You know what we need to hear today, and so Lord, we ask you to do your work. Help us to listen to what you have to say to us. I pray that you would give us attention and understanding from your word so that we may apply these lessons in our life and know how to respond to you in the right way. And Lord, now I pray that you would use me as your instrument, your spokesperson, Lord, just use my tongue to proclaim your word, fill my mind with your wisdom, and give my body strength by your spirit. Lord, may you be exalted today. May your word be uplifted and proclaimed before our ears. And may we learn and understand and do so that you get all the glory and honor. We give this time now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we've been going through the letters to the seven churches, and we're about halfway through. Now, this is the longest letter to any of the churches here at the end of chapter 2. It's the letter to the church at Thyatira. And just to give you some Background. I'm not going to give you a lot because there isn't a lot about Thyatira. We have no uh, biblical record of the founding of this church here, but we know there was a church because Christ is writing to it. We can assume that it was probably begun by uh, the Apostle Paul uh, or John, or both of them had influence in getting this church started. But the only other thing we really know about it, other than what we read here in Revelation 2, 
is that in Acts, we read about Lydia, who is a seller of purple. She is from Thyatira, but she didn't get saved at Thyatira. She was actually in Philippi when Paul was ministering there, and she was saved in Philippi. And she may have come back and, and helped get this church going with Paul's ministry and John's ministry. She may have been one of the first members of the church here. But that's about all we know about this church, other than what Christ says here in Revelation chapter 2. The city, um, again, we don't have a lot about it, but it's a small city in comparison to the ones that we've studied so far. Ephesus and Pergamum and uh, Smyrna, all big cities right on the coast. Thyatira was... Um, the northernmost city that all of, of all of these cities that uh, Christ writes to here. And it sat in a valley and was established by one of the generals of Alexander the Great not, as nothing but a military outpost. So it was kind of a, a uh, blockade, a defensive uh, position, if you will, and from armies coming in and attacking the coastal cities. And so it was more, nothing more than a military outpost at, at first, and it was attacked and destroyed and rebuilt several times for this purpose. And then finally, around 190 BC, it was conquered by the Romans, and then it was annexed into the Roman Empire and built up as a city and not just as a uh, military outpost. And it's at that point that it began to grow and become a city and a trade center and uh, have actual citizens live there rather than just soldiers. But the city was um, small in comparison to the other ones. And it's interesting, we have the smallest city, possibly the smallest church, and yet they get the longest letter. And part of the reason is because the sin in this church was so great compared to the other ones that Christ elaborated on it a little bit more for us and for them. Now, this was not a major religious center, Okay, we saw Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna. All of them were major religious centers with huge, huge temples to many gods, some of them dominating the city landscape. That wasn't the case in Smyrna. Smyrna was known for its commerce and trade. And in fact, in Smyrna, it was made up of mostly people who were in the trades or who were artisans or craftsmen. And so they established these guilds, much like our labor unions. They had you know, a guild for leather workers and a guild for winemakers and a guild for this and a guild for that. So all these different trades were represented through these guilds, and, and um, Thyatira was kind of the center of that. So it was known for its trades. Each one of these trades and trade guilds had its own god. They had a god to wine and a god to leather and a god to baskets and a god to whatever. They each had their own god that they made up. And so that's the god that they worshipped. And so, as they were not working, they would gather together in these guilds and worship this god. And just like all other pagan religion, the worship of these gods basically was dominated by drunkenness and immorality. That was what they defined as worship in the pagan and heathen world. And so that's what happened. The guilds would gather together on non-work days. They would worship in these drunken orgies and worship their God to their guild so the God would bless them in their trade. Now, that made it difficult for Christians because if you did not participate in these uh, events or worship of the God to your guild, then you were ousted. You may lose your job or your, your, um, uh, your, your income. 
And so it became increasingly difficult for Christians in this environment to support themselves. And we've seen through history how Christians not only were persecuted, but many of them were poor to the point of being destitute, of losing everything. No house, no money, nothing. Okay, literally all they had was the clothes on their back. And that's how many of these people lived as Christians after they were saved, because they had to give up this worship of false gods, obviously, but in doing so, they gave up their livelihoods many times. And so they had to do whatever they could to support themselves. So here's this problem that these people in Thyatira are facing. Join the false god worship in the guilds or lose your job. And what was happening is that many people were compromising here under the advice of a false teacher and saying, you know what, it really doesn't matter. We can do this and really not mean it. We can worship this false god so we can keep our job, obviously. God doesn't want us to be poor. You've heard that before. And so they would compromise and actually partake of this false worship. And it wasn't just outside, as we saw at the church at Pergamum, where they worshiped false gods outside and then came into church and worshiped God. This was happening in the church of Thyatira, where this false worship was going on right within the walls of the church. And so the problem we see here is that people in the church were being compromised by sin in order to maintain their livelihoods. And the church as a whole not only did nothing about it, But again, as I mentioned, there was at least one person who was teaching that that was okay because that's what God's will for your life was. God's okay if you compromise and sin because he wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. So Christ writes this letter to them. And as we do with all the letters, I want to look first at Christ's presentation of himself. In verse 18, he says, Unto the angel of the church at Thyatira, Right, And he says, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, as I mentioned before, all, every time that Christ presents himself to a church, he uses a phrase or a description that we've already read in chapter 1 when Paul gets this, or I'm sorry, when John gets this vision of the glorified Christ. And you can see in verse 14, if you just quickly turn back a page to chapter 1, John is describing Christ here, the vision of the glorified Christ, and he says his head and his hairs were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And so that same description Christ uses about himself in presenting himself to the church. Now, I'm going to show you three things about this introduction that Christ makes. First of all, he says, This is the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of God. Now, back in chapter 1, John refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. And there's a reason why John does that, because he's appealing or, or looking to the humanity of Christ as our human high priest and as our spiritual high priest who can... Uh, sympathize with us, who knows our weaknesses, who knows our temptations. Christ has gone through all of that. So in saying the Son of Man, John is saying he's our, our high priest who understands us. There's compassion there. But here Christ presents himself as the Son of God. That has the divine authority behind it. So it's not a presentation of Christ as, oh, you know what, 
I have compassion on you. I feel bad for you. I know what you're suffering. It's not that he doesn't know that because he says, I know your works. I know what you're going through. But he wants to present to them the authority of God in judgment because he's about to proclaim judgment on on this church and the people in it for how they are practicing false religion. So he says, I am the son of God. Then he says, with eyes like a flame of fire. And we read that in chapter 1. It is that deep, penetrating, searching eyes of God that nothing can be hid from. And it's not just that God sees everything that we do on the outside. He sees everything that we are on the inside. And that's why he uses this phrase, the the eyes is a flame of fire, because they penetrate down to the depths and the core of the issue and what we really are. And then he says, feet like fine brass. And back again, as we saw in chapter 1, this feet is a reference to judgment or to authority where people would be under the king's feet. So Christ is presenting himself here as a judge. And the fine brass symbolizes purity. So he's judging the impurity of the church just in presenting himself in this way. So he says, here I am. I am the one that's writing this letter to you, the one, the son of God, the one who has eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. You'll see these references come into play later in this letter. In verse 19, then, he describes this church and he gives them commendation. What is good about it? And he says, I know thy works. In verse 19, and charity and service and faith and thy patience And thy works. Now, he repeats the word works, depending on the version that you have. If you have an ESV or an NASV, that last works may not be there, but it's implied in the last phrase of that verse that says, and the last to be more than the first. But he says, I know thy works. Now, he said this about the other churches as well. I know the outward work, and the word here is toil and labor, that you sweat, okay? It's hard work. I know you are a hardworking church. And you're working toward the right things. And then he says, I know your charity, your love. Now remember the, the church at Ephesus was condemned for one thing. They had left their first love. Here, he says, I know your love. I know your charity that you have one to another, that you love each other. It comes out of your love for God. And then he goes on, he says, I know your service. This word in the Greek is diakonia. It means Uh, ministry, it's the word we get our word deacon from, a servant in the church. And he's commending the church as a whole for their ministry and serving one another. And that's a reference back in in this uh, reference to charity, because now they're serving in love. And that's what Christ is saying about them and commending them. He goes on, he says, but I also know your faith. This is pistis in the Greek. And this is an absolute acceptance and submission to the truth of God's word. So they were holding fast to the word of God as far as the doctrines of Christ were concerned. There was nothing wrong with the doctrine of this church, Christ says. And then their patience, hupomone. You've heard this word before. It's a fruit of the spirit. And this means being under or continuing even though you're under. And I use the reference in other churches that were commended for, the perse- uh, for their perseverance. It, it's like being held under water, and you can't breathe, and yet you continue to hold hope that you'll be delivered. And that's where these people were. They were continuing to be faithful in their service, faithful in their doctrine, faithful in their love, even though they were in the midst of great persecution. 
Christ says, I know your patience, your endurance here. And then he mentions works again at the end of the verse, but he says that the last to be more than the first. And what he's saying here is you started out well with good works, and he said, and lately your works, your good works have been more than what you did at the beginning. So you're increasing in these good works. So there's a lot of good that Christ says about this church. I mean, if you, again, looked at the outward appearance just from this description, it seems like this would be a good church. You know, if Christ or, or if someone from this church came to you and said, hey, you should visit our church, this is what the Lord said about our church. You'd be like, wow, that, that's a decent church because there's not many churches that we could say all that about or that Christ could truly say that all about. And yet, it's not just the good. This is the substance of what they are, but there was a huge, huge problem in this church, and that's what Christ condemns them for in verse 20. And again, he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. So their problem was they tolerated this woman that he calls Jezebel. Now, the difference between Thyatira and Smyrna, Smyrna was a church we looked at a couple weeks ago who Christ had no condemnation for. There was nothing wrong that he pointed out in that church. It was all good. And they were known as the persevering church. But their persecution and their turmoil came from outside the church in. Okay, He referenced the synagogue of Satan, the Jews that were attacking them, the culture that was attacking them. But inside, the church was strong. It was faithful and pure. Here, at the church of Thyatira, the problem is inside the church. And he names the person a woman called Jezebel. Satan doesn't need... Outside attacks to destroy the church, all he needs to do is infiltrate it inside. That's what he did with the church at Thyatira. If he can get a stronghold within the church, he doesn't need outside forces to tear it down because it will rip itself apart. And that's why Christ says this is so dangerous, because the church literally was destroying itself from within. And he focuses on this one woman, Jezebel. Now, I don't think her name was Jezebel. Okay, he's referencing the Old Testament queen Jezebel. She may have been called Jezebel, but likely not, because how many people do you know that are named Jezebel? There's a reason why, okay? If we go back to the Old Testament, this is a reference to the Old Testament queen Jezebel in Israel. All right, and if you remember, and I'm not going to give you the whole story, but Queen Jezebel was a pagan woman who married wicked King Ahab, who God says was the most wicked of any of the kings in Israel. He was more wicked than any of the ones that came before him. And so Ahab marries Jezebel. And when Jezebel comes in to be queen, the first things that happen is that they erect temples to Baal. And all of a sudden, this idolatry and idol worship start to become prevalent within the nation of Israel. And we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, how the children of Israel, when they first came out of Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up in the mount. They don't know what to do. He's not back. And so let's make an idol. And they build a golden calf, and they worship this calf. And they worship it like the heathens worshipped in Egypt. And Jezebel brought that into Israel later on. Let's go back to what we all know as worship. We're going to worship like the heathens. We're going to worship the heathen gods. 
Our worship is not going to be about prayer and reading the word of God. Our worship is going to be more about revelry and drunkenness and physical immorality and all of the stuff that came with heathen worship. That's what Jezebel ushered into to Israel, and it corrupted them. In fact, Queen Jezebel was so bad, if you remember the end of her life, she was thrown out of a tower over the wall. She died at the bottom of the wall, and when they came back to bury her, the dogs had eaten her body, everything except the skull and her hands and her feet. And that was what God had prophesied. This is what's going to happen to that wicked Queen Jezebel. So if you know somebody named Jezebel, tell them I'm sorry, okay? Because there's not a great legacy that comes with that name. So I don't know if this woman was named Jezebel, but Christ references her as someone that's like Jezebel because she does the same thing to the church that wicked Queen Jezebel did to the, to the children of God in Israel. If you want to look at this phrase, he says in verse 20, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess. Now, probably a couple months ago, we talked about women and prophecy, and there may be some substance for prophetesses in the Old Testament and possibly in the New Testament, but this point, or this woman, God does not call, and Christ does not call a prophet. He says she calls herself a prophetess which means God does not agree with her on this. She is not somebody who, in, in as far as the word is concerned, speaks for the Lord. That's what a prophet does. Thus saith the Lord. And so she is claiming to speak for the Lord. God has given me this revelation as a prophetess, and yet what she's speaking is not what the Lord says is right. And so Christ says she calls herself a prophetess. She isn't one. And we have a lot of men and women today who call themselves prophets or preachers or I have a word from the Lord or whatever. And the stuff that they proclaim is blasphemy and doesn't uh, match up with what the, the truth of the scripture tells us. Now, the biggest problem in this church, Christ says right here, verse 20, I have a few things against thee because... Thou sufferest this woman. You tolerate her in the church. You allow her to come in and bring this stuff with her. That's the big sin. Now, he describes the sin of Jezebel, but the sin of the church is that they tolerate this within the church. We cannot tolerate sin either in the church or in our lives and expect to have God's blessing. And God says here, if we're not going to deal with it, I'm going to judge you. So look at the sins that she brings in that these people were allowing and tolerating within the church. It says, She calls that, or the, sufferest that woman Jezebel, the second part of verse 20, which calleth herself a prophetess, you suffer her to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, there's three main problems that she brings into the church, three major sins that God says you're tolerating within the church. The first is false teaching. He says, you suffer her to teach. They let this woman teach. Now, as we've already studied in Scripture, God has ordained women and men for different roles within the church. And Paul says very clearly in 1 Timothy 2.12, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. 
Now, we're not going to spend a large part of our time looking at that, but we accept the fact that God has given men and women different roles in the church. Teaching is in the role of the men who are in the leadership. It is not given to women. And so they violated that right off the bat. They've allowed this woman to teach. Because once you ignore the clear commands of God about who are the ones qualified to teach within the church, you've opened the door to false teaching and corruption. You can't avoid it. You've already abrogated the word of God. You just abandoned it. And so now you're saying, it doesn't matter what God says as far as who's going to teach, so now it really doesn't matter what God says about what is being taught. And that was the attitude of this church at this point. They had opened themselves to false doctrine by ignoring a clear command from Scripture. Now, Paul wrote 1 Timothy many years before this letter was written to the church at Thyatira. So they had this truth. And if Paul had helped start this church, then they had heard this. They knew the proper structure and authority within the church, according to God's word. So he says, you allow her to teach. And look what she's teaching. She seduces or leads servants astray. The second phrase there, to teach and to seduce my servants. The word seduce means to lead astray. She's teaching those who have committed themselves to forsake their former lives and follow Christ. This servants is bond servants. It's doulos in the Greek. Those people who are slaves to Christ, they've chosen that. They've made that life commitment to follow the Lord, to obey him. And he, and, he, and he says, and you've allowed this woman to take these servants who've committed themselves to the Lord and say, yeah, you really don't need to follow him. You're missing out on life. You're missing out on the real truth of what you're supposed to be. And so she's drawing away these servants. She's drawing away those who belong to Christ from their master. So really, she's guilty of treason and insurrection here. That's what Christ says. She's a false teacher drawing people away from the Lord. She's literally trying to undo what God has done in the lives of these people by bringing them back into the sin and the heresy and the culture from which God saved them. So she seduces, I'm sorry, she seduces or leads astray Christ's servants. And look what she seduces them to, to commit fornication. Here's that immorality. False teaching is the first big sin, immorality. She's teaching them to commit immorality. The word fornication here is the word pornuo in the Greek. It is the act of committing adultery. And the arguments go like this to try to, and you look at this, you go, I don't understand how people could just accept that. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But you have to go to the thinking of the time out of Gnosticism came this idea of what we call dualism, where because Christ has saved me, it doesn't matter what my life looks like because I'm, my soul is saved, therefore my, life, my physical life doesn't matter. As long as we claim Christ, we can practice sin and we're forgiven. We're still going to heaven. That's basically the foundation of this argument to seduce people into sin. This is being taught by people today. It doesn't matter what your life looks like outwardly because God has saved your soul. He has that secure. No one can take that away from you. So no matter what you do, you're going to go to heaven. It's called dualism. It's false teaching. It also is based in this idea of antinomianism, which is basically an absolute rejection of the principles of the law. We say we're not under the law anymore. 
And we aren't as far as the ritual practices of the law. Christ has fulfilled all of that. But the principles of the law still hold true for all of us today. God called his people to holiness. That's what the law was all about. It was to show them what holiness looked like and to show them that they could never meet up to that standard by themselves. You know, and today, if we give the gospel without the law, basically we're giving people this fire insurance salvation so they can go to heaven and then they live like Satan all the rest of their lives. That's not salvation. But it comes from this antinomian thinking where, you know, after all, we're only human. We can't be like Christ, so don't really even worry about trying to be holy. Can't do it. You're just going to fail, so don't bother Okay? And this is the foundation of the arguments, not just here, but today. You hear these today. And you hear these in churches today, unfortunately. So she's leading them away to commit fornication. She's justifying this fornication by saying, hey, you know, it's just part of life. It's what, all right, and you've probably heard this. God has given us that desire within our body. Why would he not want us to fulfill it? Well, God has given us that desire, and he's given us marriage as the, pla- as the uh, atmosphere in which to fulfill that. Everything else is called adultery and fornication. And so they abandon the real foundation of the truth of God's word here and what God has said specifically and just justify this sin by saying, hey, you know, It's our desire. God gave us this desire so we can do it, and we can be happy, and we can worship God as we do it. And they're committing all kinds of immorality right within the church. And this was not just within the people of the church. This was in the worship of the church because that's what they did in pagan worship. And then he goes on. He says she's led them to eat things sacrificed to idols. This is idolatry. And I talked a little bit about this last week where this, the um, things sacrificed to idols, the meat offered to idols, is prohibited in the word of God. It's not something we get to make a choice about, whether it's, you know, it's my conscience against it or whatever. I know the meat hasn't changed, it's just meat. But it's very clear. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, ta- Paul's talking to the Corinthian church about this very thing. And that was written... Uh, probably 40 or 50 years before this letter to the church at Thyatira. And Paul says in chapter 10, verse 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. He's comparing the eating of things offered to idols with celebrating the table of the Lord, communion. And he's saying, These elements are dedicated to God so that we can remember the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ in our salvation, the sacrifice that he made for us. How can you go from that into eating food that has been in the fellowship of Satan? It can't work. He goes on in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. So this is literally idolatry that that they have allowed in the church. And these things are forbidden in the house of God. These are outright wrongdoing and sin, and these people know it. And yet this woman Jezebel has convinced them that it's okay. A false teacher leading people astray. 
In Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, it talks about the Jerusalem Council. It was a question whether the Gentiles had to practice circumcision and how much of the law they had to follow as they joined the church. And this council at Jerusalem was all the apostles and some of the elders, and they got together and they discussed this and they prayed about it and asked God for an answer. And their conclusion was, it basically boiled down to three things. And they said, number one, abstain from things sacrificed to idols. Command to the entire church. Okay, so there's a violation of that. Number two, from eating blood and things strangled. And number three, from fornication. That was the prohibitions from the law brought into the the New Testament church. And they can't even keep those. They make justification for doing these things, even though they're outright sins. And so the church had not just participated, but they're tolerating this sin, and they allowed this woman, this false teacher, to remain in the church and continue teaching people and drawing people away, and that's what Christ condemns this church for, because you are not dealing with open false teaching and sin right within your congregation. And Paul condemned the church for these very things 50 years before this. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, he goes through a whole list of issues that the Corinthian church had. In chapter 5, he condemns them for allowing adultery and fornication in their midst, in the church. Same thing as this church here. In chapter 6, he says, flee fornication. In chapter 8, he condemns them for eating things sacrificed to idols. And he says, if you will love each other the way you're supposed to, you won't do things like this that cause each other to stumble. And so the church at Thyatira is repeating the very sins that Paul elaborated on in 1 Corinthians probably 40 or 50 years before this. And these are in the contemporary church today. These are not sins that they just had to deal with then. These are sins we have to face now. There's false teaching all over the place. And as I mentioned, there's teachers, prophets, pastors, I mean, whatever name they give themselves, And here's their message. God has saved you because he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Anybody who proclaims that message is a false prophet. Now, God says he wants us to be happy, but the the Proverbs tell us, happy is he whose trust is in the Lord. That's where happiness is found. Jesus Christ outlined happiness for us in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. It's blessed are those who are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, understanding our own depravity. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who come to God for mercy and show mercy to others. Blessed are ye, he finishes those, when you are made fun of, when you are reviled, when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's what Christ says salvation is and a Christian is. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you lots of money, and you're going to have the best food, and you're not ever going to get sick, and you're going to have big houses and lots of good cars. He says, you are going to be persecuted. You are going to have your things taken from you. But you can still rejoice because all we need is God. That's the truth. And so anybody who tells you, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy, that is false teaching. We have idolatry. Now we look around, we go, well, I don't see any statues of false gods, not many in America. 
You know, we might have some that come over from foreign countries, but we don't have idolatry really as a problem in our country. Um, I disagree, because idolatry basically could be defined as allowing anything else to take the place of God or to share his priority in your life. If you elevate anything in your life to the place that God is supposed to have, to the priority that God should have in your life, that is idolatry. We worship that. We put equal value on whatever that is that we should put on God. Now, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the rest of it is going to be added to you. God's going to take care of all this stuff. Do you remember what the second thing he said was that we should seek? There isn't one. He just said, seek first. That means seek only the kingdom of God. That's our priority. And if we don't do that, then we have succumbed to an attitude of idolatry where we have decided what the priority in our life should be, and therefore we have set up another God in the place of God for which we are now worshiping and trying to attain. Idolatry is prevalent in our Christian culture, especially in America, because we allow the rest of our life to take precedence over God. It keeps us from praying regularly. It keeps us from being in his word regularly. It keeps us from fellowshipping with believers regularly. We have all these things I'm so busy doing. You don't understand, Pastor. I understand. We've allowed things and put things in our lives that God does not want us to make those priorities to keep us from the things that God wants to be the priorities. And that's called idolatry. And every single one of us is guilty of it, including me. And then he talks about fornication and adultery. Let me describe it this way. Unfaithfulness to your spouse. And what did Jesus say? If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in God's eyes. Now, how many of us can say, oh, I'm not not guilty of that. Sorry, we all are. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee fornication. The word fornication there is the word pornea. In this passage in Revelation 2, he uses the word pornuo, the act. The word pornea in 1 Corinthians 6.18 is the idea. Everything that's encompassed in this idea of immorality, that would include lustful thoughts, pornography, and anything else you can do privately that no one else will ever know about. God knows. Remember the eyes of flaming fire that sees into our heart and mind and knows what we're thinking? Can't escape it. We're all guilty. And so Christ is not limiting this to just the outward actions. He's looking with eyes of blazing fire into our hearts and he sees the false teaching that we've embraced. He sees the idolatry that we practice in replacing God in our lives, and he sees the immorality that we practice in secret, either in our minds or where nobody else can see us. And he says it's time to repent. Now, just because we, don't, we, we commit these sins doesn't mean we're not saved. We fall. We fail. We're human beings. I'm not making excuse for it. I'm saying that's who we are. 
And the reason we fail is because we're not putting our trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us from sin. We're like, God, I got this. Don't worry about it. Take a breather for a minute. And then we fall. Paul said, to him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. If you think you got it, you're about ready to just fall down. You are about ready to sin. Because we can do nothing without Christ. But just because we commit these sins doesn't mean that we are not saved. And that's why 1 John 1.9 tells us, if, if we confess our sins, if we confess that we are still sinners, that we still fail in giving God the glory in everything in our lives, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. That's given to Christians, to believers. And then he answers those people who says, well, you know what? I don't think I have to worry about that because I don't do those sins. In 1 John 1.8, he says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. So either you're a liar, which makes you a sinner, or you admit you're a sinner anyway and confess your sin. You can't get out of it. So when we talk about church, I'm sorry, sin being prevalent in the church, it's probably just as prevalent or more in our church today, even though you can't see it outwardly. And I'm not talking just about this group of people. I'm talking about the church of Christ as a whole in the world. 1 John 3, verse 9 says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. It doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. It means your life is not a pattern of wrongdoing. Your life is not defined by these sins. And if our life is defined by these sins, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us neither adulterers nor idolaters will inherit the kingdom of God. We will not want to sin. There's a change in our hearts that comes as the Holy Spirit takes precedence and takes over in our lives. Our desires will become to please God more than to please ourselves, and that will become the growth pattern of our lives. We want to please God more and more. We hate sin more and more because God hates sin. But if we continue to do the same patterns of sin over and over and over and over, and, uh, you know, nobody saw me do it, no harm, no foul, don't worry about it. I'm going to go to church and everything's going to be good. And that's exactly what Christ is condemning this church for. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers it, God forbid. Just because we're human beings doesn't give us the excuse to sin. You can't say, well, I can't help it. I'm not Christ. I, don't, I can't be that, that good. That's the whole point of salvation. We can't be that good. And so we have to submit ourselves and say, Lord, I give up. I give up trying to be good. I can't do it. I need you. I need your Holy Spirit. I need your blood to wash my sin away, as we sang this morning. Because I can't do it. Here we have a church that's just filled with this sin. Open sin. And they're tolerating it. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, he says, if those who cause others to be drawn into sins like this, it would be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you'd be cast into the sea. So it's not just those that do the sin, especially those that teach others that it's okay. Because you're a human being, don't worry about it. You can't be perfect. God's not going to condemn you. 
those people who teach that, the judgment's going to be a lot worse for them. And so Jesus is condemning this pattern of sin in the church. And he especially focuses on the one who's the main instigator. And then his judgment. He talks, remember, the feet of brass, the judgment of God coming to carry out judgment to purify his church. He says in verse 21, I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. The word gave is past tense. God has given her a chance. She has lost the chance. He is ready to judge her. In verse 22, here's the judgment. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, the analogy he uses here is if this woman is trying to lead people into immorality, basically she's a prostitute, okay? And Proverbs talks about those kinds of women in chapters 5 and chapter 7, and they lead people to her bed. And so Jesus is saying, If she wants to lead people to a bed, I'm going to give her a bed that she's going to end up in. It's going to be the bed of eternal judgment in hell. And not only her, but all those people who follow her. All those people who accept this false truth, who practice this. And he says in the last part of the verse, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into the great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Look at verse 23. I will kill her children with death. Now, if Christ had just said, I'm going to kill her children, I think we would have got the picture, but he emphasizes it. I'm going to kill her children with death. Now, he's not talking about her physical children. He's talking about the people that follow her, that have accepted this false truth in this false way. I'm going to kill them with death. What Christ is saying is there's people in the church I will literally kill to cleanse the church because they won't repent. This message is not just for this church. This message is for all of us. That's why he ends and he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. This message is for all of us. Now, I've shared this example with you before, but when we were in in New Hampshire, we had a young couple that came in and joined our church, and they seemed like they were excited to be there, excited to learn, to grow in Christ, and within, uh, the, the husband was in the military, he was getting ready to go to basic training. Within a couple months before he even left for basic training, we found out he was having an affair. And, the, and we followed Matthew 18 in church discipline, and the pastor went to him, and he took a couple people, and then it was brought before the church. And the guy wouldn't even talk to anybody, let alone repent. And we prayed and said, Lord, he's in your hands. There's nothing we can do anymore. We followed the process that you've given us. He won't repent. And so we put him out of fellowship of the church. He wasn't coming anyway. And said, okay, whatever it takes. He went to basic training about a week or two after that, and one of the first things that they did in basic training was called the dunk tank. It's where basically a big tank of water, and you go under and stay there for two minutes so you can learn to hold your breath and manage and maneuver and all that. He drowned. They never had anybody drowned in the dunk tank before. He drowned. Now, I'm convinced God was carrying out judgment because he would not repent. This is not an idle threat. 
God will take people out of his church if they are bringing corruption in and sin openly in their lives unrepentantly. He will kill you. That's what he says. Now, we don't have any record in history of specific people that God took, but when Jesus says something, he is going to follow through. He says, I will kill their children with death. Now, Christ gives this warning to his church. He says, here's what's going to happen to those people who don't repent. But look at the next part of verse 23. He says, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. Remember those blazing eyes of fire? You can't hide sin from God. He can see it. And it's not just the things we do, it's what's in here. And he says, I'm going to kill these people. I'm going to kill Jezebel. I'm going to take them out of the church so that all churches will know that I'm the one who searches the hearts, the innermost being. And I'm going to judge you not just according to your works, which he says, I'm going to judge you according to your works, but it's the inner workings of the heart that he judges us by as well. What are our motivations? What are the things that we want? And so he says, I want them to know that Christ judges and searches the hearts. And he says, I'm going to give everyone according to his works. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. Verse 24, he says, but unto you I say, he's talking to the angel or the pastor of the church at Ephesus, or to the church at Thyatira. He says, unto you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, those who have not followed this woman, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. He calls it the depths of Satan. Now, there's a progression here of the degree of sin that Christ is talking about. In the church at Smyrna, he addressed the synagogue of Satan. Remember, that was the Jews that were pressuring them from the outside. In the church at Pergamum last week, Pergamos, he talks about them being in the seat of Satan. That is the culture that they live in that was infiltrating the church. And here he calls this false teaching and corruption the depths of Satan. It doesn't get any worse than that. You're in the depths of Satan. But he says, to you that have not gone there, that don't accept this stuff, he says, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. These are the faithful ones. That means there's a faithful few still following the Lord, still doing what's right, even in the middle of this corrupt church. He says, I'm not going to give you any other burden than just trying to persevere in this environment. He says, but that which ye already have, hold fast till I come. Continue in the faith. Continue obeying. Continue trusting me. Continue in real worship. And then he gives the promise to overcomers. Verse 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. This power over the nations is a reference to Christ's millennial kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, it says, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Overcomers are true believers. 
those who are trusting Christ and faithfulness, those who persevere. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? If we're a true believer in Christ, after the rapture, when Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom, we will rule with him. That's what John is saying, or Christ is saying here in Revelation chapter 2. True overcomers are those who are truly trusting Christ for salvation. For 2 Timothy chapter 2, describing those who persevere in the faith, Paul says to Timothy, it's a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, remember, true Christianity is about suffering on this earth. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. And then in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, this is John giving this revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the Bible tells us all believers, all saints, are going to reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. But it's only going to be those who overcome, who persevere in the faith. And then he says, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. I love this phrase here because the word rule here is actually the word poimano. You probably have heard this before if you were here with us when we talked about elders. Poimano is the word to shepherd. This rod of iron is the shepherd's staff. And it's a staff of strength. That's what iron signifies. And so Christ is saying, I will rule over my sheep with a rod of iron, not judging my true sheep, but look at the next phrase. He says, as the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken to shivers talking about the enemies that come in, the wolves in sheep's clothing. He will use his rod of iron to shepherd his sheep by destroying false teachers and those who would seek to corrupt the church. And he says, even as I received of my father. Now, Christ is actually quoting Psalm chapter 2 here, verses 6 through 9. That says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. This is talking about Christ. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ is quoting the psalm in reference to how he's going to judge his enemies. And the phrase at the last, even as I received of my father, he told us that in John, Christ is talking about his sheep here. John chapter 6, verse 37, all the father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. True believers, Christ will protect us. He will help us persevere, but he's going to judge those people who are not truly his sheep. And then the last phrase he says in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. The morning star is a reference to Jesus Christ himself. He is known, he's talked about as the morning star in Revelation chapter 22. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19, Peter admonishes us to take heed to the scripture until the day star or the morning star will be revealed in our hearts. 
persevere, overcome, and you will receive the fullness of Christ, not just his spirit in your, bo- in your, in your heart and your, and your body as you live on this earth, but we will be literally in his presence. We shall know him as he knows us. And Christ says, I will give them the morning star, the fullness of Christ, that bright and morning star. And he ends with this, again, this admonishment to us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. I wonder, what would Jesus Christ write about this church if he were to send us a personal letter with all of our good things and all of our bad things? What would Christ say if he wrote you a personal letter about your Christian life? I mean, hopefully there will be some good things. But when he says, I have something against you, what would that something be? Is your life marked by faithfulness and purity? Or is it marked by a pattern of sin? Is it marked by overcoming? Or is it marked by compromise and corruption? False teaching. Are you on guard against immorality and idolatry in all of its forms? This morning in Sunday school, we were, again, studying about the golden calf in Israel. And in our lesson book, it had this phrase, basically said, to see sin in the midst of the church or to see sin in somebody's life and to do nothing about it is not only being complicit with that sin, but it's a sin itself not to stand up for the truth. I think that's true. If we do nothing, we consent. That's what Christ is condemning the church at Thyatira for. They have all this sin, and they did nothing. Satan wants to take us down from the inside. It starts with you. He goes for the weakest link. That person who isn't dedicated to the Lord, who doesn't care, really, about the spiritual life, who doesn't care about walking with Christ and living in the Spirit. That's the weak link. That's where Satan can attack. That's where he can get his grip. And it's those people who he uses to take the church apart, piece by piece. Here's the question, are you the weak link? And only you and God can answer that. But if God looked at you, would he point at you and say, you're the weak link? It's time to repent. You don't have to be the weak link, but it all depends on your faithfulness and purity before Jesus Christ, who is our great judge. And someday we'll stand before him, and either we will hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, or we will hear the words, Depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, I never knew you. It all comes down to repentance. It's not just, I prayed the prayer, I walked an aisle, I'm good, I'm saved, so it doesn't matter from here on out. That's not the attitude of a true believer. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and sometimes, many times, it's hard for us to hear. There are the things that we can rejoice in. We know that you're coming. We know that you love us. We know that you will take care of us, that you're always here. You will never leave or forsake us. We claim those promises so often. Yet it's so easy for us to ignore the commands to holiness, the commands to persevere even under persecution, to remain steadfast to the truth of your word, and to keep our lives pure before your eyes. Lord, we can't do it ourselves. We acknowledge that. And so we need your help. But help us to make it a priority to let you rule and reign as our king in our personal lives each day so that we will follow you and reflect the character of Jesus Christ in our lives that you might be glorified. Lord, we thank you for your word today. I pray that you would let it do its work, have your spirit do his work in us and let us not just walk out of here and forget this but to meditate upon it and ask ourselves, what do we need to change? What do we need to let you change in our lives so that we can be more in the image of Jesus Christ? We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 485. I'm going to ask the guys if they would join me with the guitars and Sean at the piano. 485, revive us again. I think lots of people and lots of Christians talk about revival. And the truth of the matter is, revival starts with you. If you're not willing to be revived by God, to be changed, to be forgiven, to be made holy, there's no reason for us to pray that about anybody else. So revive us again. I hope that you can pray this as a prayer for yourself as well as for our church. Let's stand and sing, revive us again. Thank you.
again. We do want to thank all of you for coming today. I hope the Lord has given you something from his word that you can take with you and meditate on. You don't have to remember everything that was taught today, but God probably impressed upon you one thing that's important for you to deal with in your life between you and him. So meditate on that, pray about that, and God will do his work. Let's have a word of prayer as we dismiss. Lord, thank you again for your word and the power in it. Lord, we pray that you would use that power to change us, use that power to accomplish in us and through us those things that you want as you build your kingdom on this earth. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to persevere in the faith in the face of persecution in hard times, which we haven't seen much of, but may be in our future. Lord, help us not to give in and let the corruption of the world take us away from you. We thank you for your goodness, for your truth, for the power that is in us through your Holy Spirit. May you keep us faithful to you to be that light and salt that you've called us to be. We give you the glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior.